0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan LeBell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to be joined by David Paul Kuhn to discuss his new book, The Hard Hat Riot, Nixon, New York City, and the Dawn of the White Working Class Revolution, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. David Paul Kuhn is an author, reporter, and political analyst, who served as a senior and chief political writer for Politico, Real Clear Politics, CBS, and other outlets. Many listeners will be familiar with his articles in The New York Times, Washington Post Magazine, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and The Los Angeles Times, as well as his work as a political analyst on networks ranging from the BBC to Fox News. He has two previous books— the Neglected Voter, White Men and the Democratic Dilemma from St. Martin's in t- 2007, and a novel, What Makes It Worthy, published in 2015, that addressed the tabloidization of American politics and the power dynamics between the press and public officials. I'm delighted to welcome David to New Books and Political Science.
0: Thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation.
1: So the Hard Hat Riot recalls a forgotten, violent attack by construction workers on Vietnam War protesters, to help us better understand the current polarization in the United States in 2020, especially in terms of white working class men. The hard hats become the stand-ins for voters who were part of FDR's Democratic Party, but became the members of Nixon's silent majority. The reaction to the violence in your telling maps onto polarization patterns in the early 21st century. And the book's larger claim is that the hard hat rebellion contextualizes Donald Trump's 2016 victory over Hillary Clinton and the continuing resentment from white working class voters. But but the book describes an incident that was front page news in 1970, but unlike Kent State that happened just four days before, the hard hat riot didn't enter our vocabulary and it's been forgotten by many. So, So let's start with recalling the event itself. What happened on May 8th, 1970, New York's financial district had been the site of many protests, uh, but this particular protest resulted in a riot with over 100 people injured. Start us off by what happened on this day.
0: Uh, If you will, I'm just going to fade out for a moment um, just to give a little more context. On April 20th, 1970, Nixon pledges the withdrawal of 150,000 troops from Vietnam, and many of the best newspapers... Presume this was the first step and reported that it was the first step of, of the drawdown of the Vietnam War, that the Vietnam War is all but over, to quote the Chicago Tribune. Ten days later, uh, Nixon announces the k- expansion of the war in Cambodia and activism explodes in the United States. Basically, the anti-war movement is revitalized from the University of Maryland to Oregon State. ROTC facilities are firebombed, vandalized. There's again, unrests unlike anything. It's even unlike anything we experienced today. And then uh, that leads to a college no one had heard of. Uh, on May fourth, Kent State in Ohio. And of course, now we know Kent State and recall the tragedy of those 13 seconds, where four uh, young college students are in are killed. And um, nine are wounded. And then after that, basically, uh, the Dow Jones declines to the, to the greatest extent since JFK's assassination. Um, you know, ROT facilities are struck with fire bombings from, again, across the country, Rhode Island, Kentucky, Missouri state schools throughout, elite schools are hit too. Um, it's, it's, the anti-war movement is it's, it's unlike anything the United States had seen in the modern day at that time and new york city is simmering it has over 40 colleges it has a very active uh counterculture movement we forget how much the counterculture was born out of new york city it's sort of associated with california in many respects uh and there's unrest on wall street for days basically the wall street is a center of protest because they're viewed as the masters of capitals and the masters of war and then may 8th 1970 um days of scuffles and smaller conflicts between construction workers and anti-war activists uh, basically climax into a, a terrible confrontation. And that terrible confrontation occurs because of an accident of history. At the same time, the protest movement is down on Wall Street. New York City has experienced its second skyscraper age. And most famously, the World Trade Center is being built where there are 5,000 construction workers alone. And because of this coincidence into this, these two, uh, two tribes, if you will, of America that who viewed each other almost unfathomably different at this point, and we'll just use a shorthand, uh, hard hats and hippies, if you will, allowing that it's a generalization. uh, We're confined to this narrow landmass of lower colonial Manhattan, only a kilometer wide because there's no battery park city yet. And that leads to uh, confrontation unlike anything we saw uh, on that day of May 8th. And it will lead to uh, New York City's financial district being overrun, uh, City Hall being sieged, uh, and um, really a um, mass violence uh, unlike anything, especially in a wealthy area of New York City, they had, uh, the city had experienced in, the, in, in that era.
1: It's a remarkable story, and the the book is a page-turner. I am from New York. I'm from Queens. I worked in the World Trade Center in the 80s and have walked all of the streets that you discuss in the book. And so it's very, very um, close for me. I don't need to imagine how small that space is. And despite the fact that I grew up in New York, that I worked in the Trade Center, that I walked those streets, I'd never heard of this uh, event. So I- I'm wondering, where did you get the idea to do the project? Um, and how long have you, been, have you been working on this idea?
0: Well, you very kindly mentioned my first two books in the introduction. And my first book was on um, Democrats' historic issues with whites, especially men, and uh, the other side of the gender gap, if you will of what we call the gender gap. And that book uh, uh, in 2007 uh, really, um, I, I, I traveled through history, the history leading up to the, the Reagan Democrat, if you will, and then the elections after. And there was no moment in my mind when I did that book, there was a better microcosm of when the FDR coalition fractured than the hard hat rise. So it was always in my head as a microcosm. Trump uh, runs for president, the national media rediscovers uh, working class whites in 2015, and 2016, just like they did in 1969, after Richard Nixon's shocking comeback, and uh, victory, and we can we'll go into that history. And after that happened, I didn't want to write pure analysis, like my first book. And so I wanted to write a, a lesson of history and focus on this history. And so it, I decided to do a, a focus on a microcosm of this riot, which has largely been forgotten. And I would only do that if I could find this, these original records that I knew existed or I thought had to exist, but I wasn't sure. And, um, and so I, I found the protein of the, of the story I wanted to tell. And so I, my hope was to sort of tell that story Um, in a novel-esque fashion for part, for one of three parts. And then in the beginning, part one, give the, uh, the back, the backdrop part, and then part two, folks on the right. And the third part, uh, the aftermath going into uh, Nixon's blue collar strategy. And finally the 1972 campaign, because of course, as many of your listeners know by 1972 between Goldwater and McGovern, uh, the American, uh, Tectonics of politics had shifted, and I think you one would it would be agreeably stated at a political science conference that we have the beginning of what is modern polarization in that era.
1: No, and actually, uh, Lily Gordon and I interviewed Lori Cox Han about her book on the uh, Pat Buchanan memos, and that work, if you haven't seen it, is unbelievable in just listening to to. Uh, Pat Buchanan lay out the strategy and Nixon respond to it because we have the tapes, because we have these incredible memo, or she actually obtained these incredible memos. So actually, the people listening, a lot of them love uh, to know the sort of archival story. So tell us a little bit more about these documents. Where were they? Um, and And maybe even... You know, a couple of your aha moments in those archives documents that changed how you viewed the story or changed the direction of this book.
0: So, what's interesting about this book is I really was ambivalent on writing the book at all. I felt that, I felt for all the talk of the white working class um, and then obviously other topics, I think that even those who despise Donald Trump and his presidency will agree. Um, returned to the fore because of Donald Trump, right? Globalization, how trade had decimated aspects of of, uh, especially the industrial Midwest. Uh, I I felt like I was torn because as much as the hard hat ride I thought was the the best and most cinematic microcosm to bring readers in to this moment. I was also torn because there there, there were so many riots of that era and Detroit and Newark saw significantly more fatalities. And um, I wasn't sure I wanted to tell this story at this, for that reason. Then I um, I got the original research. And what made me want to tell this story at the outset was that um, unlike Stonewall, which happened only the year before, right, the beginning of the gay rights movement, as we now look back, and those terrible, um, the worst riots of the mid and late 60s, this story hadn't been told. And I believe it hadn't been told because... As I write in the introduction, you know, there's the axiomatic saying in history that winners write history. And we think of that in terms of wars between nations, but I think it also applies to cultural conflict within nations. And I think if we're honest about it, those who write our culture and uh, teach in our universities are children of or quite literally are the, of the baby boomer counterculture cultural generation that i think you could say won the culture before it won the politics um and as i've dived into these documents and really discovered that there was um that what that there was a a story to tell that hadn't been told um it just my curiosity just it, it was like kindling on a fire so basically to get quickly into the records to the extent it interests your readers or your listeners, I, um, there was this, after the hard hat riot happened, which shocked the establishment for obvious reasons, because it's occurring on wall street. Um, Lindsay, the mayor of New York city at the time, who was a national figure was pressured into, uh, coming down hard on the New York police department was where there was like many mayors and the NYPD, there it was a very tense relationship. He ordered an investigation by the NYPD. To the dismay of those who were injured, and um, the ACLU and many groups, there was never an outside investigation by a third party. So, unlike Kent State, unlike Chicago '68, um, unlike Myriad, unlike the Columbia occupation, there uh, there was never an outside third party who investigated the heart hard riot. But what there was, and what I knew there was, was an NYPD investigation, and what I knew about the NYPD of this year was that it was both highly professional compared to most police departments and also highly corrupt. So um, I wanted to see if I could get the records behind their investigation, because what happened is the May, the riots in May and in August, the NYT puts forth a 40-page report and it, it acquits itself in this report, not surprisingly. Uh, but I knew that behind all that report would be, Thousands, and though I never expected um, many more than that, you know, eight thousand man hours, as it was to use the term of the time, uh, of NYPD interviews and investigations. So, what I was hoping to get was all the documents behind the NYPD public report. I also knew that because the ACLU tried a lawsuit, that the affidavits of that lawsuit have to somewhere be entered into the public record. So, my goal was to get. Um, all the meat behind the, um, the, all the, just all, all the research behind the end result. And, uh, I've of course started with foil and FOIA, uh, basically freedom of information, freedom of information act requests, uh, in 2017, both to the FBI and, and every New York city agency, um, and long story short, the NYPD and FBI would obstruct it in every way possible, but I eventually got a foil on appeal release from the NYPD. And then I discovered that these records, this was a big aha moment, that there was, a, there was separate litigation that forced the NYPD to move all their intelligence files out of, this, out of their purview and into the New York City archives. But no one had gone through I'm just going to give a rough number: ninety to ninety-five percent of those records. So that made me think. <laughs> <laughs> that's an opera. That's like that's the kind of thing that that uh, writers
1: salivate
0: over. I was just going to say for transfer a, for records. A, here here we reporters <laughs> for. Re, this is where reporters and academics share something, and where the Venn diagram crosses over deeply. Uh, that's right. That's to to use a crasser term. That's like the wet dream of anybody reporting this research. It really wasn't amazing. I knew once I found that out, I was like, okay, the only thing that would stop those records from being there would be if, um, something corrupt took place. So, which was not impossible. Um, so I basically working with the, uh, the equivalent of the, the New York city archives, um, the archivists effectively were trying, uh, they, they basically were, I've, Unlike the officials at the FBI or the NYPD and so forth, they truly believed in the spirit of the Freedom of Information Act. And they gave me access to the records before they had been, they were able to go through those records and professional professionally. Um, what will the term used as your listeners will know is unprocessed. The records were unprocessed. Yeah. So when I got to the records and discovered them, they were as they were when the NYPD closed the investigation in nineteen seventy. They were disorganized um, and uh, and raw, but I mean, I had every interview. I had the notes from every interview they did. They interviewed over three hundred witnesses. I had there were over two thousand pages that ultimately of you know arrest reports, memos, everything that they were all it was all there, it all recorded, um, and so uh, it really was everything I'd hoped for. And so at this, I went through all the records before they were. Well, they were processed, to use the term of archivist. And then um, that became the protein behind my timeline. Again, this is the, for the riot itself. I created a timeline that was hundreds of pages. And using that, and then I would weave in, uh, you know, in the timeline I would create, I would weave in then newspaper articles or affidavits or um, any piece of data, trying to come up with as best as I could. Um, an actual, I mean, trying to retell history to the, to, to them, you know, in five minute, even minute interval to the extent I could, so I could get the sequence of events correct. Because even in the amazing journalism that followed the heart, some great journalism that followed the hard heart well-intentioned searching stories, mm-hmm. um, they were just immense errors. Some of the, what I started discovered. though, I would interview, I was interviewing eyewitnesses people experienced it 47 48 years after it happened and although they had the best of intentions we're talking some at times harvard educated extremely intelligent people um they just didn't remember huge portions of their experience during the riot and that were clear from the contemporaneous documents so i after doing some in-person interviews and in as many as i thought were necessary i started to realize i needed to rely above all on the contemporaneous documents and um and so I tried to recreate a narrative of the of the riot first, and get the history right as uh, to the extent that I would feel comfortable if I was a prosecutor going in front of a jury with that with the story I would tell, and and then uh, you know I wanted to make it vivid and uh, a page turner as you noted for that portion, um, and I ended up cutting. Actually, I note in the book five thousand words, were probably closer to eight or ten thousand words from the narrative I wrote just of the riot. Because, of course, um, it was a balance between wanting to do my sort of—I felt responsible to history to tell the story. At the same time, re, people only want to go into so much detail about any historical single-day event. So I had to make sure that the riot stayed, you know, a gripping story. Or, and uh, while you know, telling that story and. As the history allowed, how in that in that day it was a microcosm of this fracturing of the FDR coalition, and then um, use that as sort of the hinge to tell this larger story of when the um, of when that FDR coalition broke apart and this early this this beginning of what would become to be known a decade later of the Reagan Democrat. So first of
1: all, I want to say that that. Av- absolutely comes through in the reading of the book. Uh, and if and you know, if you're like me and you toggle back and forth between the footnotes uh, and the you also have a little source uh, epilogue at the end, it, you can see where each of these comments is coming from. So that was that was as I was reading, I was trying to think, hmm, so, what's the difference between this book and a book that would be written by Dr. Kuhn, who teaches history somewhere else as opposed to a reporter? And one of the things I noticed was the emphasis on the primary documents, uh, the emphasis on the oral history, as opposed to tons of secondary documents, manuscripts and articles that contextualize things that 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 seemed to be sort of the the reporter in you showing as well as the historian in you i, I had a question though it did, was there any case in which you were interviewing in the present somebody who had also been interviewed by the police in the past and you Absolutely. were comparing their
0: their future and okay so yeah that's what caused that's what you know we've just let's just without I don't want to go too far into sort of incidents in New York City, whether it's the Central Park five, or frankly, incidents during the Nuremberg trials, that um, that that I think all the, that have taught us a lot about eyewitness issues with eyewitness testimony, especially eyewitness testimony that you you for whatever your biases are, you kind of want to believe so when I would interview So what happened was, is I started interviewing. Uh, well, let, I started interviewing individuals who experienced riot, whether they were victims, or they worked for Mayor Lindsay, just to give two examples, or witnesses, and there were not only did I def- did, did, was there conflicts, direct conflicts, or immense gaps in what they told me and what they found, or what existed in the contemporaneous documents, but I also, again, I'm Trump guarding my words because I don't want to give too much detail to, in any way say anything negative about any one individual. I will just say, first of all, um, the, if I can, the, hum, the way I came into this humbly as I started to realize that these issues was that I was there on 9-11 at the World Trade Center and experienced it, um, the, the horrors of that day right at ground zero and saw some terrible things. And that was a lot more recent than the hard hat riot and arguably a more traumatic event, even compared to those who got beaten unconscious that day or equally traumatic. And I don't. I question my own memory from that moment. I don't know how much of my memory was influenced by the media I saw afterward. And so um, to talk to people several decades later than that timeline, uh, you, you really, I think it's, I think, unfortunately, not everyone can find contemporaneous documents, but it, it, I, I think that historians and reporters writing history in which they over-rely on contemporaneous interviews, or excuse me, Retrospective interviews, decades later, should um, there should be an immense amount of humility because, I, in my case, I caught with doc, I caught direct conflicts with the doc, with what they told police then or said in affidavits then, um, compared to what they um, what they with the best of intentions recalled of that day.
1: No, that's, uh, it's, it's not something that many historians have the luxury of being able to do, but uh, no, I, the, the immense humility really strikes me as a, as, a, as a term that would resonate with a lot of academics and reporters who've been in the same shoes. So the book is divided into three parts, uh, backdrop, Bloody Friday, and afterward and aftermath. It's a long book, uh, for listeners, I want to say it is a long book, but it's also uh, a page turner. So it's it's one of these books that sort of looks intimidating, but actually, when you start it, is is not uh, is not something that you have to um, eat your wheaties to read. Uh, so let's we're not going to cover everything in the backdrop, but but let's start with a little bit of how you see the events that. Lead up to this moment in which the construction workers would physically attack uh, these Vietnam protesters who are standing there. Uh, so, so let's start with a little bit about about sixty eight and sixty nine and Lindsay and uh, and and how we we can understand this moment in New York City politics.
0: Absolutely, really in national politics because we should. Uh, begin with the fact that I chose New York City for a reason. It's not just that the hard hat riot is a microcosm of uh, the fraction of the FTR coalition in this era. It's that New York City, c- counterintuitively, for those who only know the modern New York, is, a, is in many ways that or as I put in the book, Gotham, is indicative of the of the middle American squeeze as it's put in that day to use the vernacular of that day. And uh, New York City. The majority of New York City residents are blue-collar whites. Still, by 1970, um, it it is it experienced the deindustrialization of America before most of America in in the 50s. Only a couple decades earlier, New York City is a manufacturing hub of the United States, um, and there is a uh, the manufacturing sector. Other sectors like longshoremen, it, they're utterly decimated by the mid. To late 60s so there was the aspect of wanting to show through new york city the deindustrialization of the united states right because the factories will leave the northeast then they'll leave the north then then they'll, they'll go to the south and eventually they'll leave america uh i also um i, I wrote this book thinking that the worry that the law and order issue and <laughs> that topic would uh appear antiquated to readers, never expecting what we've experienced this summer. Uh, And I I devoted, without even intending, two chapters to to this issue. I wanted to, I thought I should reframe it a little bit from what had been done before. I wanted to show how the law and order issue grew out of the decline of cities. And again, tell that story while talking about other cities, tell that story through New York City. Many people still today, including some who have written retrospectives of the late 60s, forget, associate the seventies with New York city's decline. It, it started in the mid sixties. In fact, John Lindsay ran in uh, the mid sixties to be, uh, to be mayor of New York city on, on a, on a, uh, with a slogan to say one ad something can be done, right? Quote unquote. So New York city is, is experiencing the Dean, not only deindustrialization, a rise in crime, just like, the na- just like the nation is, a significant rise in crime by the late 60s starts to begin to be exponential rise in crime. Uh, uh, the, the pollution is poisoning New York City's air. Um, you know, for example, mortality from pulmonary emphysema increases 500% in the 1960s in New York City. Um, and and so we forget how much that was a A blight of that period, and and I I, so I wanted to uh, give that context. I also wanted, you know, I also one thing that I struggled with is do I tell uh, some important antecedents, right? And and so if you're one, two of those antecedents that I decided what were very important stories had been told by books in and of themselves. One was the Columbia occupation, right, 1968, which is a, a precursor of Chicago 68, and of course Chicago 68 story has been well told. I did not entirely agree with how those stories were, been to- were told. And um, so I wanted to focus on, I wanted to give those antecedents because they both showed uh, a narrative thread that came out of the hard hat ride and would um, pervade this era. And that is that for all the discussion of the, uh, the generation gap, in the 1960s, it, it, the great one of the the great divide, for example, on Vietnam and on many of these issues, was were matters of class. And even um, when you isolate the polling to, for example, 20 to 30 year olds or 20 somethings in that period, 18 to 30 year olds, uh, you see this class gap between those with some college education or a college four year degree and those uh, whose education never exceeded high school. Obviously, because it's 1970, when I'm looking at data i'm I'm including those with some education because you could have a very good life with even some even whether it's a high school degree at that time or some post high school education Um, and that polling is not much in the in the it's all deep in the notes because i don't want to bore the average reader but it's there and it's it's the Mm -hmm. spine of my book and i have it there for historians and academics and reporters because i do feel Let's just and of course, as you know, when I'm giving the backdrop, I focus on on Vietnam, and I do feel even with Vietnam, um, if I can, I feel I can punch up here to Ken Burns. Ken Burns, as as amazing as he is, and as much of an institution of American life as I think he is, I think his very in-depth recent documentary on the Vietnam War uh, left out an immense part of that war, and that is that those with that unlike any war since at least the Civil War, and I, I suspect more than the Civil War, uh, those with less died at higher rates, and were asked to were asked to go to the. Uh, those with less had never were asked to do the fighting and dying, and whether they were black or white or Hispanic, and, in the Vietnam War, and to some extent I think it's been for. This part of it has been written about, but still not, not, not digested to the degree it should be, it becomes the most awful and tragic example of this class strain between whites in American life that pervades the 60s and early 70s.
1: Um, you had a little Freudian slip there on the gender thing. So let, let me ask you a, a question because uh, there were two things that sort of struck me about this first part of the book. First of all, it's it's very uh, well written and you do a really nice job of pulling back the lens and not having it be unidimensional. So I, I really liked that aspect of it. Um, but this is really a story about men. And actually, you use the word people a lot, but it really, as I was reading the book, I thought it would actually be more accurate to say that the resentments that you're mostly focused on in terms of the construction workers and also the behavior of the police are are in these um, uh, predominantly male uh, occupations that have a certain kind of culture that is different from all people. And second, race. So the book is is taking place from the late sixties to the seventies, but but race is somewhat in the backdrop here. I mean, you emphasize the class differences in the fighting in Vietnam, but don't lean as heavily into the fact that more black and brown people were both in the war and died at higher rates than they than their popu- general population numbers would. Um, Can I step in there? Can I step in? Yeah, of course.
0: Okay. One, um, it's true that African Americans in the Vietnam War served and died on the battlefield at higher rates early in the war, but by the end of the war, African Americans died at the rate of the population. Um, Secondly, when you look at those who did die, and I think what is often forgotten, those who had who served in the war in the in the war in in, um, in forward aspects that were made them much more likely to die, were far and away, um, whether they were African-Americans or blue-collar, working-class whites and Hispanics. In other words, um, actually on Vietnam, it's class. And when you look at also on resentments, class pervades uh, much more than race. And, you know, I, I have all the hard data in the book to back that up. Um, now, that, but I think you touched on something that is true, like a, a larger story, right? so which is you know first of all why is not race in the foreground of the book and um and is this a story of just of men right of working class uh white men and not working class women well one I, I, to, to what you said about the um about the hard, let's just say the hard hats and jobs that are dominated by men could also be said about the anti-war movement right it is, and and some of the most famous, if not the most famous, episodes of the anti-war movement, uh, Chicago '68. Roughly nine in ten of those arrested are young men. Uh, at, at, in Chicago '68, for example, so um, I think that it's true that for reason for many reasons, including um, most obviously sexism, men were at the fore of both sides of this divide. Um, two. Uh, it is true that um, – which is why I did that first book – that by the Reagan era, um, the gender gap, basically because men left the, the Democratic Party, uh, uh, is essential is, is to the story. But what we start seeing in the 60s and 70s is that all these um, uh, issues and resentments and, uh, show up in, in working-class white women as well as working-class white men. And there was, that said, obviously, if you make the hard hat riot, if you decide that's the microcosm to, to center your story around, you're telling a story where, um, mostly almost entirely male construction workers beat up mostly male anti-war activists. And, or let's just, again, to use the shorthand of the time with all the generalizations and and faults of generalizations that come with that term um or you know hippies right so most of the injured that day were 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 men as well and so i mean it's true that to tell this story it becomes extremely male and i would and i think if i can jump into the present one difference between the protest today for uh probably the black civil rights issue of our time, right. Uh, is that women are at the fore of at least African-American activism in the way they were not with either the black Panthers and certainly not with the anti war movement. Um, so, and I, and it's hard and we'll see how that, you know, wh- you know, the impact that has, but I think that the, um, I think that the trend you're noting pervades both sides of this divide. Um, on race, it's...
1: Let me actually just jump in here for a second, David, because I want to make sure we stay on track with with your book. Um, And I'm also, I'm not, I I don't want to insert myself as an expert in something. I'm not. I think that there would be, um, I think there'd be a quite a bit of a back and forth if we had a scholar here of Black mobilization in the civil rights movement. Because as you know, like people may know John Lewis's name, but I, he co-founded SNCC with a woman, and there's many, many women who are involved in the civil rights movement. Even if the faces uh, are Malcolm X and Martin Luther King at the very top, and it is true the Black Panthers have a very different organization. It's not, but it, but it's complicated. And 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 my question was more just about race in general. That that one can tell a story about deindustrialization or resentment of elites leading to white working class people leaving the democratic party or one can add at least a third factor which would have to do with state sovereignty racism desegregation affirmative action etc so uh, that's all I, I was sort of trying to ask about how like you made the decision about about those lenses and and the one other question I just have in terms to get this number out cuz I think it's really interesting in the book for the listeners is that you write that 25% of the injured people the day of the attack were women. And I think what I'm hearing you say now and probably I missed it in the book and I apologize, are you saying that 25% of the protesters were were women? No.
0: I don't no, have okay. any data on the protest. I can only go by. I okay. just like on chicago sixty eight I can't okay. I, there, I don't think there's any data that can say who were the five okay, to ten thousand so- protesters. I can only go by arrests okay. and injury reports. Right? Okay.
1: So no, it came off earlier as as you were saying, as if it was white construction workers attacking white male protesters. So the protester mix is, is quite, is not exclusively male just, just to make sure that that's,
0: that's no, clear to everybody. The protester yeah, okay. mix is not exclusive male, exclusively yeah. male. I'm just yeah. pointing out that based on the only way you can find data, which is, you know, in these instances such as the arrests in Chicago 68 or the injury list, um, that day, uh, at the, the you know, it's, it's still, it's, it's very male on both sides. Right. Okay. Um, the, uh, the um and some of the incidents that got the most media attention for as they should were when um, were some of these incidents when uh when uh some of the female protesters were injured um uh the okay uh, so we're touching on two of the most uh, two central issues of modern you know historiography and right so to what ex- to what extent right is gender a part of all this and race i will say this that as i say in the book in the introduction you know, this is one story of this period. Two, I'm talking about a story that hasn't been told. And I, I think it's fair to say that the story of this, whether whatever, we, whatever term we want to use is called the southern flip or racism's role in the modern democratic, um, how, the, how the modern uh, democratic and republican coalitions came about has, is a story that's well told. I think the story that is undertold and the reason I told this story is the story and the story that I think is undertold for a reason is, is the class strain between whites. And if you, and, and in no way in the reason, um, I felt I told, I should tell this story and that, um, and that it was really important is that we, that not, and also that the racial conflict that that not everything was as racially divided as we, um, as we remember now, for example, I, 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 when I'm talking about the decline of cities and concerns about, um, you know, about the, um, activism throughout the country, as I note in the book, um, seven in 10 whites and a plurality of blacks saw quote unquote rab- radical troublemakers as the cause of student unrest rather than quote unquote deeply felt beliefs in the quote unquote injustices of society. So, um, and you know, I have, you know, I can go through data after data that again, I put in notes it's because I don't want to bore the reader, but, um, uh, there, there is, there is on even issues as politically toxic as uh, crime in the late '60s. There is also agreement between whites and blacks on the issue, on how serious the issue is, and on on um, on issues of, of 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 how the activism of the late '60s and early '70s was viewed. As I show, uh, whites in general, but. A sp- Uh, had a more derisive view of college activists, which let's be honest, is probably they're picturing a white face from a middle-class suburb when they hear that term uh, in the late 60s, uh, of college activists, and they did of civil rights workers. Um, And that was all these resentments towards any activism were stronger among blue-collar whites than they were among more educated whites. But one reason I wanted to, um, I wrote this book and I thought it was important is that, um, I think, uh, cl- class is an underdiscussed aspect of, of what, um, dogs and, uh, defines our politics. And I think that we don't talk enough about the class strain between whites. And as that came to the fore with the, when Donald Trump became a, uh, was taken seriously as a candidate in 2015 or began to be taken a little seriously and then um, eventually co-opted the momentum in the GOP primary and eventually wins the nomination and the media rediscovered the the working class whites uh, you know I wanted to remind people also of this time that the exact same thing happened in 1969 and there was a, a flood of articles first it began with Chicago 68 and then Nixon's Again, we forget how shocking his comeback and eventual win of the presidency was in 68 to these two establishments of of all sorts. Uh, The media started this beginning with a New Yorker article and then an article in the New York Magazine. And then basically every major publication in American life and certainly the networks started to focus on and rediscover blue-collar whites. I use the term rediscovered because the the Washington Post in a front page story did a story – on news reporters rediscovering blue collar whites. It was such a, they had been, they had been put to the side so long that the very fact that they were being covered became news in in and of itself. And, um, and so, as I note in the book, to the extent of, since the great depression and into the fifties, the quote unquote, every man is, is given a uh, rose colored portrait is, is in some, it, it, is put on a pedestal perhaps to an excessive degree, right? With an example being that Rockefeller at a, at a Haven of capitalism, such as Rockefeller center, you have portraits of icons of the, of the FDR, sort of new deal worker, uh, drawn as demigods, uh, to the extent he was, he, he, or she was seen Rosalie in that era. Uh, he, the, the, uh, the pendulum had swung radically and, by the by, the mid and late sixties, the middle American, quote unquote, was viewed um, somewhere between derisively and or seen, certainly by the activists of the day, eventually as a impediment to progress in every way. And um, and it's in this era that they become the face of of what the new left uh, felt um, they opposed. And you start to see this. Um, the polarization that has defined our politics, I think, to, uh, to this day.
1: No, thanks for the, I mean, it, it's a it's a large part of the book, and it's quite difficult to summarize it uh, in a podcast. So I appreciate you even being willing to try. Uh, before we move to the riot itself, is there any aspect of this backdrop that Uh, you feel we haven't addressed, and you want to say something about before we go to the actual events of the riot?
0: No, I feel like we've definitely (laughs) surveyed a good portion of that period. And, you know, obviously, we're speaking in shorthand. And many of the things we're talking about are sort of at the center of American history since the Second World War and deserve a much more substantial um, discussion. And I I don't mean to at times sound reductive or, or simplify Issues um, such as race or gender that uh, rightly are um, have have earned their have earned you know attention of scholarship since especially the 80s. Um,
1: one of the things that's interesting about the book is uh, the the photographs that are in the section on uh, the day of the violence. Uh, and actually, I guess I'll start by saying. People have to think so carefully about their titles and uh, your title clearly tries to kind of give the, the overarching claim of the book. Uh, is the word hard hat riot something that was in the news, et cetera, that you had looked at or was that um, something that you developed and picked out as appropriate? What, what's the, what was the balance there?
0: It was called after the hard hat riot was well. It was So it happens on a Friday. Kent State's on a Monday. The riot happens on a Friday. The famous national protest in Washington is that Saturday against over what happens in Kent State. By Monday, the Wall Street Journal, for example, has a headline referring to what happened on Friday as Bloody Friday, quote unquote, okay. which is you know one of the terms I use. But if, in a matter of weeks, the word riot is applied, clearly being applied to it, and it comes to be known as a hard-hard riot over time. Um, I didn't, I was not sure whether I wanted that to be the title of the book. I was not sure about the subtitle, um, as it will not surprise some of your listeners, the publisher had a great amount of influence on this decision. Mm-hmm. It was not left to the author. Um, and maybe the publisher was right. I'm not, but regardless, that's sort of how the, the title came about that. The hard mm-hmm. hat riot would come to be known. Um, you know, that would be determined as we're be known. I should just note for your listeners that, um, one, you know, one reason I focused on this is that sometimes just to remind everyone uh, what what becomes seminal is not appreciated in its time. We should remember that, you know, only the year, only the summer before we have the uh, again, um, we have uh, what happens in the village with um, the um, Stonewall riots. Right. Uh, the seminal what's considered now a seminal moment beginning of the gay rights movement. But at the time it was buried. Inside the New York Times coverage of it, right? Only got a few column inches. It was barely covered, and this is in the New York Times. So sometimes these moments, um, we only see with uh, with um, look. We only see in the rearview mirror how much certain moments capture, um, you know, uh, trends that come to define American life.
1: Were the reporters there? I know you mentioned that uh, there's some attack of reporters and smashing of cameras, which would mean. Film was lost, but did they did they come to report this? How how good was the reporting?
0: I, I think the reporting of the day was as good as you could expect. I mean, the um, first of all, unlike Chicago sixty eight, which has the national press, the world press, but especially the national press, you know, around and there for all the bloody moments. Um, there was not much. This there was not much media downtown when this happened, and the media, the little bits of press that were there, were uh, either attacked or ran off. So there is not. Um, so the reportage was was in, was and there weren't anywhere near the photographs, for example, of say Chicago sixty eight. Um, but it, you know, report, I think for reasons of working under deadline, more than anything else and not having a bird's eye view of, of everything i think the the report the reporting was was fine there, i caught errors in all the major stories including whether all the major outlets and but I, I those those were i think those were errors of you know that with within the framework of good intentions and mm-hmm. i used reporting to for the storyline when i could find other reporting that could back um, up that reporting so i mean basically the foundation of how i sort of went about everything was i was i i was an intern long, long ago for Time Magazine's nation section, sort of the old Time Magazine. And I was taught by their fact checkers They used to have, I think the second largest private library in the United States back then. And I learned their fact checking system and I tried to use that fact checking system of the old Time Magazine often in how I would sort say media accounts. Um, wow.
1: That's 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 saying something about your mentorship at Time Magazine. Old Time Magazine was amazing.
0: <laughs> I, I I find it. And and I will just, one side note for, you know, as I think any historian who writes about this era would probably agree, what's amazing um, to read, just, just, I just want to point, if you read Time Magazine, for example, in the 70s or 60s, it's sort of, it's amazing because this was considered a quote unquote middle brow publication. I think the writing is terrific. It's, 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 it's fact checked it's it's it has an amazing it has the feel of be, the writers being well read and and it, it just mm-hmm. shows how much has been lost um, an expectation the of the audience age. sorry oh, to interrupt you yeah, an expectation
1: you're right. of the audience to follow that kind of level of in-depth discussion um, let let me ask you a little bit about i think you're so steeped in it and now i've read your book of of what happens this day particularly uh, what's the setup? You've already said that the construction workers were were concentrated in this small section of Manhattan. They were working on the World Trade Center. Um, what what happens? And what is the behavior of the police? What? How long does it continue? Just just give us a, you know, uh, obviously don't give it the whole thing, but some some idea of what actually happens that day.
0: So the, the, the day before the Thursday, the day before this happens, the NYPD the beginning around four twenty PM. And then soon other city agencies start receiving peculiar phone calls. And basically they start getting calls that the hard hats are going to start trouble, um, for the anti-war protest tomorrow, right. The Friday of May 8th. And by the morning, um, agencies from the NYPD to city hall will have gotten warning calls that something was going to happen, um, at noontime that day, at high noon, it turns out. Um, uh, Luckily, it was a cold and rainy morning that morning. And so a lot less people came to the protest than would have come. And they were expecting 10,000, only one to 2,000 arrived that morning. Um, What happened was, and the reason it became so chaotic is it happened over lunchtime. And so you had the, the massive lunchtime crowd in the streets of the financial district and as the chaos ensues, uh, New Yorkers want to witness witness it for themselves and every people start leaving their office spaces to come down to the streets or appearing from their windows and windows are sh- opening up throughout the uh, the cavern throughout Broadway and throughout downtown Manhattan to as they, as as uh, witnesses from the street to uh, high 44 54 up and floors up in skyscrapers watch the um, the riot uh, the riot take over the streets from noon on basically construction workers come from several directions on wall street. Uh, They, they start they start getting police tries to separate the two, the two tribes with a demilitarized, uh, militarized zone, if you will, to use a vernacular of the time Uh, that eventually fails the hardouts are yelling at the cops about getting a flag up in front of federal hall. It just happens that all of this is occurring where George Washington was inaugurated as our first president and, uh, and the, the, basically the, um, there was a, that sparked the best as I can ever know, as I can discern the spark, it was a Viet Cong flag that was being waved by uh, one to two anti-war activists on the steps, only feet from the, uh, the construction workers as, who are pushing against the police. And at the moment that they surged forward, some 800 office workers had joined in their yelling to put up the American flag, and they had sort of bolstered the back of the line of the construction workers. And of course, and I should note one reason I focused on this riot as a microcosm is that you have uh, this interesting union of businessmen and uh, workmen, to use gender terms, if you if you allow that. Um, uh, Basically. No, we, we
1: need to use those terms because they're accurate. I worked down there in the early 80s, and the construction workers were men, and they were yelling at people like me. And the business community was mostly male. So I, I think actually it's really important for us to use these words as they apply. Now the crowd, absolutely.
0: Over. Yes, and the crowd is... Um... Is not overwhelmingly male, right? So the crowd are just lunchtime workers. So there's plenty of there are clerks and secretaries and, and some business women. It's it is 1970. Uh, the, some of the ceiling had been was was beginning to be shattered, um, and uh, so the the crowd is is just typical financial district crowd. And then as the riot moves to City Hall, it's typical New York City sort of bureaucratic crowd, right? Because you have the federal building, you have the federal courthouse there, you have New York City courthouses, you have City Hall, you have the, it's just a. It's where all the municipal governmental workers are in New York, in Manhattan at that time, mostly, I should say. And so um, these workers are all in the streets, and basically the the, the uh, as the as the line breaks, the pol- the police. Um, too, it's fair to say, too many police did too little, and they stepped aside because, as I note in the book. Uh, and as, as we, we saw earlier with other antecedents like Chicago 68, the cops were, were, were largely blue collar from Irish and Italian backgrounds. They grew up in the same neighborhoods as the construction workers. They, even, they had the same haircuts. They went to the same churches, the same bars. And, um, and like the construction workers disproportionately um, came from um, military ranks, the majority of the construction workers were, uh, were almost surely veterans, either of World War II or of Korea or some of Vietnam, as I notes, there were Vietnam veterans on the, in the police ranks and in the um, construction ranks, young um, men. And uh, they, the, uh, they surge forward and, a, and um, a mass melee ensues and it eventually works its way up Wall Street. And they, they siege City Hall in a respect that had not been seen since the um, Civil War era.
1: It's really an extraordinary um, picture to paint um, when you pull the lens back yourself and think about uh, Nixon Lindsay, the new left versus the white working class um, ideals what what are your conclusions at the end of the book what what, what do you walk away from from your own uh, reporting and, um, uh, examination of all of these documents and everything that you read to produce this book. <laughs>
0: um, it it's clear that um, that for the middle American, which overlaps, we right with blue collar whites at that time, right? Because when we're talking about the middle American of this time, the country is very white, and we're really talking about um, whites in in the suburbs and in cities, and, and for middle Americans, we're talking about whites also in, of course, rural America um uh it's fair to say that they that that they felt that their that the values that they had grown up and still cherished felt inverted to them right so they um uh working men were were they felt were, were seen as were framed as, as fools working for the man uh, motherhood was suddenly being described in, in in slavish terms and in negative terms for housewives um they felt that uh, Veterans suddenly saw the, um, the, the, the very object they venerated and that in their minds, and not just veterans, the average American at that time, uh, that in, them, in their minds reminded them of the best of America suddenly become a symbol of disfavor with the United States. We forget, which I try to remind the reader of. Um, it had only been a matter of years by 1970 that the American flag is a popular means to express disfavor with the United States. And flag desecration, and most visibly with the burning of a flag, um, you know, it was shocking at that time to the average American. And uh, so we see competing notions of patriotism and views of, of, of the United States that, and of, of, of American culture that, uh, that are very familiar in our time and uh, I think rooted to this time.
1: What has the reaction been to the book? I know that you, this book has come out in the midst of a pandemic, so you haven't has had as many face-to-face encounters as you probably expected to have when you were writing the book, but what has the reaction been from different audiences?
0: It's hard to say. Obviously, this book came out in, a, in during a pandemic. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, you, you write a book like this and you do a few things. One is I knew because I'm talking about the dissolution of the FDR coalition. And as you just noted, um, there's a, there's a prevailing story of how, of, of, I would say an overly reductive story that, you know, that it all, that presumes that it's always the worst in them. I, I use to put it in the terms of the time. It's like a breakup and it's, it was, it's, it's all him and not me, or it's all her and not me. It's her fault or it's his fault. And we, and I think that, um, and I think that the, the story is, is not, is not that, um, I don't think this story is that uh, black and white, if I can use that term. And I, I wanted to, um, and sort of, when I, I'm sorry. Maybe we should redo. I'm getting off subject here. Why don't we do a redo here? Could
1: perfect. Yep. Absolutely. No ah, worry. Um, don't worry. It's a long interview. Just don't. Don't. This happens all the time. Don't worry about it. Okay. Do you want me to? Uh, do you want to start with? Um, the reaction to the book or where would you like, what's the best place?
0: Okay. Yeah. Let's just, um, yeah, let's go, let's Let's go back to that. Yeah. Let's
1: just go back to that. Um, so David, I know this book came out during a pandemic and you weren't expecting to not go face to face with your audiences who have read it or interested in it. You were thinking about book signings, et cetera. What has the reaction to the book been from different audiences and did, did it surprise you or was it what you expected?
0: Well, first, most importantly, um, I did hear from those on all sides of this turmoil, including victims of the riot that day who were part of the anti-war movement. And I heard from, um, the, uh, for example, one of those I interviewed, the, the last remaining um, union leader who would eventually meet with Nixon at the, um, in the weeks after the hard Hat riot as Nixon seeks to co-opt this energy and, and form his and formulate his blue collar strategy i heard from people from all sides and i had really um heartfelt emails saying that they felt the story would be told and that's obviously heartwarming and makes you feel great as a, as a reporter and a writer but writ large in the country i, I didn't i knew i was talking about minefield. if you're writing any story about the dissolution of the um the fracturing of the fdr coalition beginning in the 60s so that's a real reason why the notes are so immense and why I try to back everything up with data as much as I can in the notes and records, because um, I am walking a minefield and talking about these topics. And uh, I would say the reaction of the media, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I I, I guess it's, um, it's, it's been really lovely to read these wonderful reviews. Obviously like any writer, I'm happy that the reviews were so positive from the major newspapers like the journal and the times and the Washington post. Um, and I do, of course, because this book came out during a pandemic, I do wish there was more one-on-one with, with, uh, with readers and, and, and debates about, uh, the pertinence of, of the turmoil of that time. And this time, um, I do speak with, you know, groups of whether it's, you know, even book clubs virtually, but it's just not the same thing. Uh, but considering it came out during a pandemic, I. I just, you know, I'm happy that it, it it got the reception it did, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope that the research behind the book, again, in the notes, helps um, contributes in some small way to fill out the story of this era. Again, I never claim, and I make a clear introduction, mm-hmm. this is the only story of how um, of how the FDR coalition broke apart.
1: Uh, I know this book has taken up a lot of your time, but do you have a next project in your head or in your apartment?
0: I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm still digesting the experience <laughs> of doing this book and everything it took to to put it together, especially the research and reporting, before I even started writing. And um, I, <laughs> that raises larger questions about writing books and maybe a post-literacy age. I'm just not sure so i'm I have to think about a lot. I'm very grateful that the book got the reception it did. and i'm I'm grateful to be on shows like this and to be part of the discussion. i am I am not sure what I'm going to write next.
1: Well, if you write another book, please come back to new books in political science. Thank you so much for taking this much time so that we could have a more sort of nuanced back and forth about uh, what is a really beautifully researched and well-written book that uh, enhances our understanding of the complexity of this period. The new book is David Paul Kuhn's The Hard Hat Riot, Nixon, New York City, and the Dawn of the White Working Class Revolution. It's published by Oxford University Press. You can get it on the Oxford uh, website. You can also, as we are recommending, use bookshop.org to support your brick-and-mortar bookstores, particularly while some of them are closed. If you're in places like New York City, walk into a bookstore and get it there. Um, And uh, again, thank you so much, David, for joining me today.
0: It was a real pleasure and honor. Thanks for having me.